Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. Scott Radley sitting in for Rick Zampern today. We are going to be talking about Hamilton's judicial inquiry into the Red Hill Creek Expressway situation. The number, the cost has gone through the roof. What is going on with this? Why is it costing so much and is it worth it? We will talk about that. We're going to talk about toys going into the World Toy Hall of Fame. Which toys are they? I tell you what, this is going to be nostalgic for you when you hear us talk about this. Gas prices are going up and you can probably guess what's leading to some of that. We're going to be chatting about whether or not there are any good strategies that are working for housing across this country that Hamilton might want to look at trying. Hint, yes. Second hint, haven't done it yet. We'll get into that one. We're going to look at the actions going on at Queen's Park in the legislature around Sarah Jama, Hamilton Center, NDP, MPP, regarding sanctioning her. We'll see where that is right now. And Rick Emmett, lead singer and guitarist of the Canadian, the legendary Canadian band Triumph, who's got a new autobiography out. He joins us. Stick around. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Three and a half years ago, every single councillor except for two on Hamilton City Council, Lloyd Ferguson and Brenda Johnson, were not in favour, but every other councillor voted to have a public inquiry into the Red Hill Creek Expressway with the situation with the asphalt and the report that was buried and all this kind of stuff. And at the time, lawyers had argued, don't, don't do it. Have a, an auditor general or an ombudsman investigation because that's going to cost about $300,000. This will be more expensive, the idea of a judicial inquiry. But they didn't want that because those other options were not transparent. They weren't open. The judicial inquiry would be open. However... However, it is open, but it is also, according to reports this week, reached not 300,000 that the Auditor General or Ombudsman would have been, not the 1 million that was the low end for the inquiry that was thrown out there, not 11 million as the high end, $28 million we are now at. $28 $28 million and could be higher. John Best is the publisher of the Bay Observer. John, how are you this morning? I'm well, thanks, Scott. Uh, I, I, when I saw the number 28 million, I, I gasped a couple times because at the worst case, we were told this is probably going to be around 11 million, but we, it could go up. It could go up, we were told, because you can't control these things. 28 million is outrageous. It's a lot of money. It was, uh, it was 26 million in August. Uh, so two months later, it's gone up uh, by 2 million. So using that math, let's hope we do get the report next month yeah. uh, as they're suggesting, because uh, the, the meter is running. It, it's a, it's a big item. Um, I, I can recall, um, just, uh, around the last election, uh, the outgoing mayor, Fred Eisenberger said that one of his biggest regrets was going along with uh, calling a, a judicial inquiry because the money or the number just, as you can see, just got totally out of hand. Is this, do you suspect, and I, I do, but do you suspect that the reason or one of the things that led to the decision here was this was around the same time as the sewage spill allegation and cover-up, and I get the sense that councillors just did not want to have any possibility 
that the, anything was being covered up again. So let's do this. Let's get it out there and let's have no one claim that we're doing anything undercover. I don't think there's any question, Scott. Uh, council um, had really taken a hit with the uh, Sewergate uh, situation, although, again, an, another situation where they really had very little to do with it. Uh, and as it turned out, council had virtually nothing to do with the Red Hill situation. In fact, the one thing that did come out of the inquiry was the the extraordinary efforts that were made to keep council in the dark. So, yeah, they they wanted to look like they were taking decisive action, and uh, um, you know, it was uh, the activist council light that we had uh, prior to the last election. So all of those things were kind of swirling around, and uh, here we go. Yeah, and I don't for a second, by the way, I don't for a second believe that if we were to move things forward, and we can't, it's hy- it's just hypothetical, but I don't believe that we would have had a different decision by council. I think, th- I think regardless, this would have been the decision of council, whether it was then or whether it was this new council. The problem now is, John, is what do we do with this? So you're going to get, let's, let's, say, let's say $28 million is where it finally caps out at, and what do we do with this now? Because it's for 28 million. What do you, we don't know what the conclusions are yet, but you're never after spending $28 million going to be able to say, we don't support this. You kind of are obligated regardless of what comes out to follow along. Are you not? Well, not only that, uh, whatever the findings may be, they, they could very well feed a whole bunch of lawsuits that, uh, will take that 28 million and make it look like peanuts. So th- th- there's a lot going on here. This thing got started because of a, a report from a, an organization that was called in to look at what how slippery the road was. The report never saw the light of day. Somebody, uh, a staff member, decided to not put it forward. That was sort of the genesis of this whole inquiry. It turns out that that report really not much hangs on that as as uh, the testimony unfolded. There, there was a lot of shade thrown at that report as to whether it was really important or not. But what did come out was just a tremendous amount of dysfunctionality in the public works department. The people, basically a conflict between the people who build roads and streets and the people who operate them after they're built. They were concealing information from each other. Um, they had consultants working across purposes. Um, it, it really, it's like, uh, you know, you go in for an MRI for a bad back and they find something else that's more serious. Mm-hmm. And that, that's kind of what happened here. This, If there's one good thing about this report, it did reveal, a, um, I think, a serious kind of a management issue and a, and a dysfunctionality. Uh, in public works, which is a huge department, uh, a lot of autonomy within the department. And uh, I'm not sure that that's been adequately dealt with yet. One of the things that has been talked about at great length and justifiably so in this city is uh, the budget situation, tax increase, 14.2% is the starting number we're told this year. This is money, this $28 million is money the city is going to have to pay. I don't think that any other level of government is coming to rescue us and give us this money. Do we know where this is coming from? I mean, it's taxpayers' money, but is it going to be strapped on to this year's budget? Do we know? Is there a fund for this? Is it covered by insurance? Do we know anything about that? Uh, I don't think it's covered by insurance. Um, It's always a murky issue. Uh, When you look at budgets uh, with the city of Hamilton, the one budget that you can't penetrate is legal. 
uh, you know, they I believe they probably set aside uh, money. I, I would say the 26 of the 28 million uh, has probably already been set aside because we've known for well over a year that this thing was going to be north of 20, 20 million. So I think most of it has probably been set aside. But, you know, it's very hard to get a handle on on where legal comes from. It doesn't come out of um, uh, a line budget where you can sit and look at the whole budget book and say, oh, yeah, there's there's where they're uh, anticipating they're going to have to pay out for that. And in a way, you can understand it like, you know, if, if the city's being sued, um, you certainly don't want to see a line item of, as to what they think they're going to lose. It's, so it's a tricky area, admittedly. But uh, I, I would say 90% of it is probably already on the book somewhere. Mm. One way or another, we're paying for it. It's tax money that uh, that we'll be paying for. So, you know, maybe everyone should read this carefully because you, <laughs> you help pay for this report. It's, it's partially yours. Uh, John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. Thanks for this, John. Appreciate it. My pleasure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Ongoing saga of NDP, MPP, Hamilton Center, MPP, Sarah Jama at the legislature continues. You know the story by now. I am sure that shortly after the Hamas terror attack on Israel, she posted something on social media, which flew in the face of her party's position and called Israel an apartheid state. And many people took much issue with what was written, including her party leader, Merritt Stiles, who publicly demanded that she take it down and apologize and retract. Well, that has not happened. In fact, as the legislature is debating whether to sanction her, that note, that original message, which has never been taken down, has now actually been pinned onto the very top of her Twitter page, giving it the most prominence of anything that is there and meaning that anything else she writes will not, it will stay on top. It won't get bumped down. The conservatives say this is doubling down on her position. The liberals say this is provocation. What do we take from all this? Sabrina Nenji is founder of the Queens Park Observer, joins us now. Sabrina, how are you? Uh, busy as usual. It's never a dull moment at <laughs> Queen's Park. It is never a dull moment these days. This is this is an interesting one for so many reasons. And let me start maybe not exactly where we are at this very moment. I am amazed that regardless of whether you agree with Sarah Jama or not, I'm amazed that someone who their leader said, you must take this down, you must retract, that they have refused to do that, have actually, as I say, pinned it to the top of their Twitter page, and their leader has now completely, it seems, backed down and says, we're good, that's fine. I, I, I don't remember seeing another party leader demand action from a member and not get it and that be okay. Yeah, this has sort of morphed into a litmus test for Marit Stiles' leadership. I mean, don't forget, it wasn't that long ago that she took the party helm over from Andrea Horvath. Uh, you know, earlier this year, Sarah Jama herself is also a rookie, you know, um, just winning the by-election not, not too long after Marit Stiles took the leadership. And it's really been um, a tense standoff between the two. But you're right. You know, Mart Styles seems to have backed off while the conservatives who I mean, let's just 
let's just state the obvious here. They're probably welcoming this distraction at a time when they are, they're being investigated by the RCMP for the Greenbelt decision. Um, but certainly they're, they're digging in their heels on this. Uh, and, and like you said, you know, it sort of seems like an act of defiance for JAMA to pin this tweet now um, on, on X, you know, the uh, formerly known as, as Twitter. And regardless of where you stand on Israel and uh, the attack by Hamas, I mean, the that's always sort of a hot potato in politics, you know, around the world. But to, to sort of, you know, not delete the statement um, and rather maybe just like offer an apology and couch it when your leader has publicly demanded you do this. And don't forget, like this was a really awkward 24 hour standoff between the two. And now you've got another party sort of butting in um, with this motion that would bar Jama from speaking in the House if she doesn't apologize and take it down. Um, it's really just extraordinary um, when you look at it, you know, through the nitty gritty of what's going on behind the scenes in the NDP caucus. Yeah, it, it is. Po- politically, it's a, it's a fascinating soap opera because because I, I have to believe that behind the scenes, all is not peachy keen between the leader now and her member. Because it, it, it I have to believe this has embarrassed Merritt Stiles when one of the people who is supposed to be answering to you won't. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I have heard, as my my colleagues in the press gallery have heard, that you know it's not all peachy keen uh, in the NDP caucus right now. I have heard you know differing t- tales. For, it depends on who you ask, but you know some folks are saying this is uniting us. You know, like we're putting up a united front. Other folks are really upset about the handling of this. Um, and there's even rumors that one NDP or threatened to quit the caucus, but was was talked off the ledge. I mean. This is obviously something that the NDP has been dealing with. It's not the first time they've been under fire for, uh, you know, being pro-Palestine. And I think, you know, for JAMA, like I should say that she did apologize on Twitter for her original statement. She called out Hamas specifically. Um, And the NDP has referred to Hamas as a terrorist organization. But the way that this has just, you know, reached its tentacles to Queen's Park, you know, the provincial legislature, uh, something that's happening, you know, halfway around the world is is truly stunning. Um, And the NDP is accusing the Ford government now of using, you know, this tragedy in the Middle East of what's happening for their own political gain and trying to capitalize off of it. So this isn't going away anytime soon. It's an extraordinary move for the conservatives. um, And this is going to play out over the coming days. Okay, so quickly, because we only have a few, about a minute here, but where does it stand right now with the motion to sanction her, to eject her, whatever else, where where does that stand? So that's still being debated today. Um, The earliest it would go for a vote is on Monday. Um, And there's really, I mean, motions are non-binding, but something like this, I think, would have a real... Uh, effect. I mean, of course, it, it says that, you know, the speaker wouldn't recognize JAMA to pretty much do the job she was elected to do. We're hearing that the liberals are con- seriously considering supporting it, which would be, you know, another blow to the NDP. Um, but certainly, you know, the clock is ticking and all eyes are on JAMA who hasn't been in the House. And so if she does apologize, I mean, this is a way out of it for her, but pinning that tweet, it doesn't seem Mm. like that's the way she wants to go right now. Very quickly, just technically and mechanically, I understand that with a motion like this, it's not just on a majority vote that it has to be, is it unanimous? How does it, very quickly again, how does it work? What, for her to be shut down in the legislature, what has to happen? 
essentially the motion needs to pass. And yes, um, it, it's not necessarily for unanimous consent. Um, I have heard that the NDP caucus is split on this. So a lot of people will be watching, you know, how well Marit Stiles can whip the vote on this. But the PCs have a majority. And I, I think that especially with the liberals, if they're going to support this, then that's going to signal to the speaker that this is, you know, the will of the House and that this is something that's going to happen. Uh, it's not the first time the legislature has done this. They've done it to Randy Hillier uh, for his what they've called racist comments against the federal transportation minister. And, you know, Randy Hillier did not apologize and was not recognized in the House uh after that, uh, and, and of course, he's no longer a politician, but, you know, this could seriously have a, a really chilling effect um, on on all MVPs, but also, you know, on JAMA and her ability to represent Hamilton Center. Sabrina Nanji, founder of the Queen's Park Observer. Love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Yeah, it's always about that, isn't it? Well, this weekend it's going to be about that because gas prices apparently are going to be heading up, which means it's time to catch up with our friend Dan McTague, who's the president of the Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, how are you this morning? I'm fine, but becoming less and less so every time I'm on here with you. Well, (laughs) yeah, and you know, like I always feel badly bringing you on because often it's for gas prices going up. It's like, man, the guy's becoming the grim reaper here. Every time he comes on, it's bad news. What's going on? I could guess what's going on, but what's going on that's driving yeah, up gas prices this weekend? It, it, <laughs> it's the uh, it's the perfect uh, uh, you know trifecta. You've got, uh, of course, a second war now uh, threatening all the time in uh, in Israel, Gaza. Uh, that has a lot of uh, you know market concern. But you had two factors here domestically. I think that also. Uh, played into this uh, increase. So we're seeing an increase, uh, as we saw today, of one cent a liter. Not a big deal for most, high of only 152.9 compared to this time last year when it was uh, a little closer to $1.62. Uh, tomorrow, we get a four cent increase, and that's all because of, yes, one concern of what's happening in the Middle East, but the other factors are um, tightening supply of gasoline in the United States. Uh, that's something we haven't seen in a while, a couple of reasons for that, but uh, oil and gasoline and diesel uh, supplies are tightening somewhat. Uh, and to, to some people, it's unexpected. This is a time where you usually see these things build. Um, the third, of course, factor, uh, the Canadian dollar. <laughs> it continues to lose uh, ground to the U.S. greenback, and because uh, all energy uh, and most commodities are priced in U.S. terms, um, you know, Canada slipping in terms of its uh, loonie versus uh, the U.S. dollar, uh, actually adds to the price uh, of fuel. So uh, hence why we got that four cent increase. It may not last, uh, and that's the good news. We may see things draw back a little bit as a result of the easing of tensions, perhaps today or tomorrow in the Middle East. But uh, there is certainly uh, upward uh, support for uh, energy and gasoline and diesel and home heating uh, fuel prices. Dan, over the past couple days, a few days now, I guess, uh, this is this is a question that I've been having because we now have, as we well know, the war in Ukraine and Russia, which is one of the larger supplies of gas, and now the Middle East, which is one of the larger supplies of oil and gas. And if over there, there's been rumblings, if, if, if those in the Middle East who are behind this were to decide that, you know, they want to send a message or they don't like the U.S. or Canada's position on where we stand or whatever, and were to cut off supply, what what happens? 
Well, the what if is is not as likely as it might have been before. Okay. One, uh, they're not selling a lot of energy to us in North America. They are to Europe, but not North America. Uh, United States and Canada have upped their energy game, although of late it's sagged a bit because the uh, pipeline blockages by governments and uh, the move um, uh, towards uh, other forms of uh, energy um, seem to be uh, seem to have played a pretty pretty big role in countries like uh, OPEC. OPEC nations saying, "Well, if you don't want any oil, we're, we're not going to supply it. We cut back three million barrels." But Iran is the only one that is pushing the idea of having all of OPEC do what it did 50 years ago and uh, cause an energy crisis. Again, the, you know, uh, things have changed dramatically uh, since then. Uh, Iran seems to be an outlier, but that's also important because uh, it may very well be a situation where Iran itself finds itself sanctioned. Um, as you know, uh, indications are, Iran had a lot to do with the attack on October 7th in Israel. Uh, and if that is proven to be the case uh, or substantiated further, or Iran decides to involve itself with, say, Hezbollah or other factors and continues saber-rattling and those things translate into some kind of action militarily, uh, I would expect that uh, you know we could see a 3% drop in world oil production as Iran is effectively in its oil sealed off from uh, a good part of the world. Not China, of course, not Russia, but uh, the rest of the world will, uh, will frown on uh, what Iran has or will do. And I think in that context... Yeah, then you would see prices go up, but not as dramatically, I think, as uh, what we'd have seen, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. I, I know this is a bugaboo of yours. You've talked about it a lot over the months and years, but with all of this geopolitical war, strife, everything happening in so many of the world's largest oil producing areas, what what would... Canada's position have been an ability to bring in money to help our economy had we actually gone ahead and put ourselves in a position where we could be producing a lot more or at least delivering a lot more than we are right now? Well, the world's short about 2 million barrels a day. Um, had uh, the Canadian government not decided to kill the Keystone, rather, sorry, the uh, Energy East and the Northern Gateway pipelines, that's 2 million barrels there almost. When you add Keystone, that would uh, have stabilized diesel prices in the United States. Now, of course, the United States is uh, talking to Venezuela about getting heavy oil. The, the key here is heavy oil. Uh, the world needs more of it, and it's the kind of oil that uh, we're not getting here in North America. What could have been would even be even greater on the natural gas side. We had 18 LNG projects proposed. We barely have one uh, that might be ready next year or the year after, uh, but... Beyond all of this, the potential would have been substantial. And uh, this is where I think uh, Canada would have played uh, a much more important uh, and more critical role internationally uh, because it would have had the leverage. Now, this is not leverage that, you know, is wishful thinking of Dan McTague. When you have uh, the Prime Minister of Japan and the chair, the Chancellor of Germany coming, asking you for more energy, and you say, no, there's no business case, and you fantasize that there's some other form of energy out there, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it, it does speak to the incredulity of our foreign policy and our energy policy, which uh, at a time like this, I think Canada could have played a much bigger role in terms of, uh, of stabilizing things geopolitically, at least displacing what Russia is doing in uh, Ukraine and financing it. It's, they're, they're laughing all the way to the bank and uh, using that money to finance the, uh, the attack on Ukraine. I, I think the same speaks to OPEC. They wouldn't have the leverage if countries like ours, which a third largest group of reserves in the world, uh, were to measure up, get some pipelines built. And I hope that happens in the, in the, uh, in the future. 
Yeah, you know what? It's uh, it's hard not to think that we would be in a lot better position, as you say, if uh, if we'd gone ahead. I know that there are people listening who go, yeah, but the environment. I get that. I get that. But um, we're doing it. But we're doing that. I mean, look, uh, we have one of the best ESG ratings on the environment. But if you think excluding Canada is going to somehow create a better environment, look what happens when we don't get natural gas to China, and they wanted to buy all the natural gas we could get uh, rather than building more coal. I mean, that argument ends. But for people who are trying to make ends meet today. When it costs you an extra 40% of your purchase power because the Canadian dollar is so weak, no one wants to buy the Canadian dollars, no interest in investing, that's a tragedy that's being uh, you know burdened on every Canadian. And you're losing the green argument very quickly by making people poor. And it's unnecessary in a country like ours. Dan McTague, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. I always appreciate it, Dan. Thanks for the time. Enjoy the day, my friend. Take care. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Constantly looking for some sort of solutions to the housing issue, whether it's a lack of stock or whether it is just affordability. Uh, this area is really needing some help and not just Hamilton, the broader area is really needing some help. So the question is, are there housing strategies anywhere in this country that are working? Are there examples that we can point to or look to and say, maybe that's something that we should try because there's been some success somewhere else? Well, there's a piece in theconversation.com. The headline is four affordable housing strategies that are working in Canada. So Presumably, the answer then to the question, yes. Uh, the author of this is Brian Doucette. He's a Canada Research Chair in Urban Change and Social Inclusion. He's an Associate Professor in the School of Planning at the University of Waterloo. And he joins me now. Thanks for doing this today. Good morning. Well, the the headline, and I've read the piece as well, and uh, it's, it is optimistic, at least optimistic in, insofar as there seems to be some things that are working, because otherwise it all seems very bleak. Well, yeah, I mean, we have to be optimistic because it's very easy to be pessimistic. And we also have to put this into context. You know, this isn't rocket science. And, you know, people who study housing, we know a lot of the things that work and that make a difference and that make housing more affordable, particularly when we're speaking about people who for decades, if not centuries, have been the victims of a housing crisis. And that is, you know, very low, low and and now increasingly moderate income households. There, you've got four, uh, as the headline says, you've got four examples of things. I don't know if we're going to have time to get through all four, but I want to go to the to the one you've listed as number four first, because I find this one really interesting. It's out of Montreal, mm-hmm. and it's called the preemptive right policy. Explain what this is. So again, when we talk about housing, we tend to focus mostly on building more supply, and we need to add more supply as our population grows. But if we're only focusing on supply, we're forgetting about the very large numbers of housing that is affordable that are being lost through a variety of measures, whether that be because there's no rent control and so the rents rise or because tenants are rent evicted, they're kicked out. And so maintaining existing affordable housing, keeping it and protecting it affordable is one of the most important strategies that that governments can do. And what Montreal has done, they've been given power by the Quebec government to acquire properties that they've identified that they want to acquire. So if, you know, the owner of a property sells it to another private buyer for say $5 million, say this is a a small apartment building, the city of Montreal, if they've identified this site as one of the 350 that they want to exercise this right, they can say, well, we're actually going to buy it for the same price that the private buyer 
was going to pay and we will bring it into public ownership or we will decommodify it, we'll take the profit out of it, we'll turn it into social housing. And so having an active and, and proactive acquisition strategy and having the funding to do it, the Montreal policy only has about $10 million a year, so it's not a massive budget, but it does signal that the city wants to acquire housing, bring it into public or nonprofit ownership, decommodify it, remove the profit from it, and keep that housing affordable. And that's hugely important and, and it also affordable housing. And it also seems far more fair to the owners of this than the idea, some people have always thrown around the idea of, say, expropriation. This seems far more fair because you're being paid what you would have got for this anyway if you had sold it. So you're not necessarily losing anything if you're the seller. No, in this case, you're selling to a private buyer and then the city says, well, we are going to pay that cost. The city has 60 days to exercise its its preemptive right once the, the sale has been approved. And the city also pays, um, you know, the legal fees to the to the buyer and seller to cover to cover those costs as well. So it is a kind of win win. What it needs is a much bigger budget. Right. Because we're talking about a right. handful of buildings a year. Uh, but if we could scale that up or if we could do that in, in other places, you think of these um, apartments in Hamilton where tenants are being rent evicted. Well, what if we had an acquisition strategy where those landlords, those owners could sell to the city, to a nonprofit, right, to uh, a community land trust, where the purpose of that acquisition would be to keep that housing affordable, to keep those tenants mm. there and to keep that housing affordable to low-income households in perpetuity. Yeah, it's an interesting one. We've got time for probably one other one here, and I wanted to go to the first one you list, the Whistler Housing Authority. Again, an interesting idea because what this, as I understand it, is doing, it's it's allowing for publicly built or publicly created housing. The catch is that it's on public land. That That's a tricky one in some places because there's not a whole lot of it that's available. But if it is, it can work. Yeah, and one of the reasons why there's not a whole lot of it available is because you know municipalities such as Hamilton sell off a lot of that land to private bidders on on the open market, and then we lose the opportunity to do something really creative. What Whistler has done is they've said we are going to build employee restricted housing because Whistler has a huge challenge of a lot of low wage workers in a very expensive community. So this is housing that's only for people working in Whistler, but they've managed to decouple the buying and selling price from the market. So you can buy a, a three-bedroom uh, unit for, say, half a million dollars as opposed to about 1.5, 1.7 on the open market. The catch is the prices are restricted when you buy and when you sell. So when you sell, you're not going to get rich out of it. But what you are going to do is you're going to have a home that you can live in in the community that you want to live. I was in Whistler earlier this year, and I spoke with some people who, who lived there, and they were basically on the brink of leaving Whistler entirely because they couldn't find a place to live. They were able to buy a Whistler Housing Authority property, and now they they said, you know, we're we're going to stay there for forever. Like this is our our forever home. Um, it's not a you know, it's not a cash machine for them. It's a home, and that's really important when we think about solutions to the housing crisis. The best ones are the ones that help shift housing away from being a speculative commodity towards a human right. And all the examples I talk about in in that piece and in the wider research that underpins it. They all do that. Uh, the piece is called Four Affordable Housing Solutions, uh, Four Affordable Housing Strategies That Are Working in Canada. The author is Brian Doucette. You can find it at theconversation.com. Brian, really appreciate you taking time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Triumph. 
legendary Canadian band. The other day I watched the documentary. I don't know if you've seen it. There's a documentary, a rock and roll machine, Triumph Rock and Roll Machine. I watched it for the second time. I am thrilled as a result. I would have been happy to talk to him anyway, but in particular in the wake of that, to talk to Rick Emmett, the guitarist, lead singer. Rick, thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, Scott, you're welcome. Uh, Rick, not only part of Triumph, obviously, p- in that documentary, but has a new autobiography out that is uh, uh, laid on the line, a backstage pass to rock and roll, uh, uh, to rock star adventure. Look, it is, um, I, I when I watched that documentary a couple times, I have always enjoyed your music. I've always enjoyed Triumph. It was a reminder, though. It's been a while, and it was a reminder of how great you guys were. Thanks. <laughs> no, no. You know, uh, I, I I, I think one of the things that the memoir makes kind of clear, I, that, you know, there's 16 chapters in the book and there's one that's called the triumph chapter because my life has been about a lot more than just being in that band. But of course, when it comes to, you know, <laughs> trying to write a memoir that you can sell some books, you're going to have to put that triumph thing on the cover. You're going to have to have that be, you know, a thing that you're going to talk about in, in interviews and stuff. But my, I think, the book is it's about a lot more than just that and um in a way that was what i was shooting for right from the outset mm. you know is that difficult then because i mean you were away from that band for a while the, it had broke up and only recently it seems that uh, things have been back together a little bit not back as a band but is it difficult when that's the thing that people say hey rick emmett triumph as opposed to just rick emmett um I- it's not difficult in the sense that, that, you know, these are like very, very first world kinds of problems, <laughs> you know, like, um, but um, it, in the sense that, you know, I made way more albums after I left the band than I yes. did when I was in it. And, you know, I taught school for 20 years and I, you know, the, the biggest accomplishments in my life were my marriage and my family and, and, you know, uh, the pride that I had in my kids and, and then all of those kinds of things where, um, virtue comes up against, you know, the other side of humanity, which is ego and ambition and greed and uh, all of those kinds of things, which, you know, when you're a rock star, there, there's a lot of that kind of stuff around you and you get tempted by a lot of it. And, um, you know, I think my life was more about trying to find my way to, I mean, and even you mentioned about the fact that we were, we broke up and then I didn't talk to the guys for like 20 years and then we got back together which was an example of kind of saying, okay, well, what about the kindness and generosity of spirit and all of those kinds of things and forgiveness? And, you know, that the, I think those were the things that I look back on my life. I go, okay, well, you know, uh, those were lessons that I learned the hard way. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's so ironic that, that you're talking to us today for the reason that the other day we were had a, a story on the entertainment report here about Tommy Lee talking about, you know, drinking two gallons of vodka a day you know, also counted as a rock star. And here you're talking about your family and your kids and your wife and teaching and virtue and kindness. There are different ways to attack that whole lifestyle, rock star lifestyle. Yeah. And I'm I'm hoping that my memoir will stand out from some of the others because, yeah, I mean, that's the kind of um, cliched sort of story that rock stars tell, you know, oh yeah, this was my drug abuse story. Here's my alcohol abuse story. Here's the story of my seven marriages. You know, uh, oh, well, I had a, a garage full of Ferraris and, you know, then this happened. And it's like, well, you know, in, in some ways I was thinking about some kid that's thinking about, hey, you know, I think I'd like to be a musician. I go, well, I'm going to try and write a book that might be helpful to that person in that circumstance. Uh, and I also thought this has got to be about me. So, you know, the, the more that I uh, fall into the cliché, 
the less it's going to be about the, the guy that I was, the guy that I am, uh, you know. So, uh, you know, I, there's this whole thing about there's a line in Lay It On The Line that says, you know, uh, uh, the truth will do just fine. You know, that's all I would like, you know. And uh, when you write a memoir, I think that becomes one of the it's one of the easy things to do, but it's also one of the hard things to do, because, of course, the truth can hurt. And you're not necessarily sure that you want to, you know, be hurting folks that you, you were close to or, you know, you don't want to be betraying confidences, mm. you know. Well, I mean, and, and because of what you've just said, I hate to go back to a triumph anecdote, so forgive me for this one. But in that documentary, there was, and it ties into what you're saying, though, is there's a, an anecdote where one of the people who's a fan is talking about how he'd had cancer and played your song fight the good fight, like day after day after day after day to get through this. And, you know, with all the stuff you're talking about, about making a difference or being a positive impact, I mean, that that's, when you when you heard that, when you saw that the first time, that has to be something that anybody would want to have on their resume, that I did something that actually made someone's life that much better. Yes, it's, it's incredibly gratifying. And I can tell you that, you know, you say you watch the thing for the second time. You know, I've watched it many, many times. And when that guy, Matt Hoffman, is doing that thing and showing his tattoo and telling the story about the letter that I wrote him. Like, it makes me cry. Like it, it's a, it's a really profound, wonderful thing that I wrote some songs that had a, an impact on people that they became part of the soundtrack of their lives. And I mean, that's why I wrote them in the first place. That was my hope, you know? So it's a beautiful thing when your hopes, you know, come to fruition, but by the same token, you know, um, I'm really just, I, I wrote another song that was on the Allied Forces album. It's called Ordinary Man. And in truth, I really am just a kind of an ordinary guy that was put in a circumstance. I had talents that, that were given to me. That's a natural thing. And it was a, a, a wonderful thing. Uh, but I, I, I cared for them and, and, I, and I nurtured them. And, and then I used them for the benefit of other people in the service of other people. And uh, that's, you know, that's part of the story that, that, uh, now it makes its way to other folks, mm. and the, the fact that these songs have become sort of evergreen is a that's that's a truly miraculous and wonderful thing, and and I'll always be grateful for it. That is Rick Emmett. He uh, was from Triumph. He's also from Rick Emmett. I mean, you can choose which one you want. As he says, more albums without it. Uh, the autobiography is laid on the line: a backstage pass to rock star adventure, conflict, and triumph. Rick, really appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thanks for this. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's keep the nostalgia going here on the show because the finalists for the Toy of the Year have been announced for the 25th anniversary of the National Toy Hall of Fame. And I got to tell you, you start to look at some of these ones and it is it is old school, but it is some, you know, simple stuff. And, and that's in a positive way. The game Battleship. Bingo, Cabbage Patch Kids, Ken, the doll, Connect Four, um, Nerf. How is Nerf not in already? Slime, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Christopher Bench is the chief curator. I, I should have put a pause. I should have put a breath between there. He's not being put into the Toy Hall of Fame. He's already there. Uh, Christopher Bench, chief curator with the Strong National Museum of Play, joins us now. Christopher, how are you this morning? I am great, Scott. I am, when I look at the toys that are the finalists to go in this year, I am, first of all, there's an awful lot, as I say, of nostalgia there because many of them are from the past. Many people listening will have played with them, but I'm struck by one other thing is how uncomplicated so many of them really are. 
That is one of the great features of the National Toy Hall of Fame. It reminds people that there are classic toys that don't have to be complicated, don't have to have batteries or plug into the wall or any of those things. Yeah, no, I mean, especially when I get down to Nerf, I mean, whoever, I don't know who it was, you probably know the details, whoever was the genius who thought, let's take a bit of foam and put it in the shape of a ball and we'll sell billions of these things, because probably, and probably because mom was tired of having stuff broken in the house by balls flying around, whatever, if that's the reason it was genius. And yet who didn't love Nerf? That's right. Nerf actually wasn't intended to be a ball. Originally, it was going to be a Flintstones game where you threw these uh, foam rocks around and they decided that they hated the game, but they loved the rocks. And that's how it all began. Yeah, and there's and I mean there's so many variants of of Nerf now. I mean it's a huge, huge business. Obviously, uh, some of these other ones, slime, which I don't know. Is there a parent alive who liked slime? The kids did. Is there a parent who wanted their kid to have slime because it did get into stuff? It did. Uh, that's the downside. So maybe it's going <laughs> to get some anti-parent votes uh, to uh, keep it out of the Hall of Fame. Yeah, the other one that, and again, there's a whole bunch of them here. The other one that uh, I have very, not personal memories, but uh, Cabbage Patch Kids, was Cabbage Patch Kids not the first toy that really started the Walmart Black Friday memes almost? Was Cabbage Patch Kids not the first one where the parents were fighting in the stores to get their hands on the doll? That's the one I can certainly think of. It was the hot item of 1983. It was everywhere in the media. And there just weren't enough of them for the holiday season. And that's when the fists popped out. So when you look at these, and I don't know how, and you can explain, are these nominated or are these toys that you and the museum bring forward as finalists? Because they, I'm wondering how they get chosen. Because they're all, I mean, again, so many of these, these are, these are things we played with. But where, where does the list come from? Well, the list is generated through nominations, just as you said. Last year, we got more than 3,400 nominations for 300 different toys. And then we here at the Strong Museum in Rochester boil those down to the 12 that we judge best meet our criteria, which are longevity, recognition factor, uh, great play value, toys that aren't the ones you roll your eyes at when your grandmother gives you and stuff them (laughs) in your bed. And finally, sometimes toys that are breakthroughs in one way or another. Yeah, no, it, I mean, as I say, I've seen this before. I've seen, obviously seen your list before. It comes out every year. And every year there are a number on there that you say, yeah, that, that's, that's, that, of course that should be there. Now, what I don't get is I was going through, because one of the things you're doing for the 25th anniversary is that there are going to be, you can vote on this, the Forgotten Five, right? The Fisher-Price Corn Popper that every infant or toddler had, I'm pretty sure when they were growing up, that thing you walk with, it goes pop, 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 pop when they're pressing it. Uh, My Little Pony, Pez, a pogo stick and Transformers. How have those not made it into the Hall of Fame yet? Well, that's what we were figuring. There are some of these toys that have sort of been cheated uh, in some people's opinion over the years. They've been finalists multiple times. They're, if you're thinking about soap operas, they're the Susan Lucci of the Emmy Awards <laughs> that just keeps getting overlooked. Someone yesterday said they're always the bridesmaids, never the bride. So this is the chance for all your listeners to go on to the National Toy Hall of Fame website and vote for their favorite once a day up through Tuesday 
October 24th, and you can directly pick what will get in as a fourth winner in the National Toy Hall of Fame this year. Yeah, I, you know, the one that kind of surprised me, because I never thought of Pez as a toy, maybe because when I would ever use Pez as a kid, I was just so interested in getting as much of the candy into my mouth as I possibly could. I didn't stop to really look at it too much. Just, I didn't even need the holder thing. Just give me the, the strip of candy. But yeah, it, it qualifies as a toy for sure. That's right. And it is something that people collect. They become little kind of action figures. Uh, They don't have arms or legs, but those heads make them play things for lots of kids. And they have certainly been around for decades and been in so many different designs. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the Strong Museum of Play, the Strong National Museum of Play, you said it's in Rochester. What If if people were to go there, because Rochester is not that far, we're talking about this and I'm sure there's a few people saying, wait a second, that sounds very lovely and nostalgic. What is, is there a demonstra, a display of this Hall of Fame at the museum? There is, there's a 3000 square foot exhibit of the Hall of Fame. And because we're the National Museum of Play, there are things to do. You don't just look at things in cases. There's a chronic bubble wall that you can shoot bubbles out of your fingers up a 25-foot screen uh, because bubbles are in the National Toy Hall of Fame. There's a giant etch-a-sketch that you can have your portrait drawn on. There are so many ways to explore, have fun, things you've never thought about before or done before with the 80 classic toys that are in the National Toy Hall of Fame. It is, uh, it is, uh, it's a lot of fun. And again, uh, museumofplay.org. I think you can vote there. Uh, Fisher Price, Corn Popper, uh, My Little Pony, Pez, Pogo Stick, or Transformers. You can vote toward what goes into the museum and into the Hall of Fame. Christopher Bench, Chief Curator. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.